Welcome to the last episode of season one of The Commute. I'm in Nairobi right now, on the way to Somalia for a work project. So if this is the last time you hear my voice before Al-Shabaab blows me to smithereens, know that a little bit of my exploded brain matter on a Mogadishu sidewalk had you, dear podcast listener, in it. So yes, today's the last episode of season one. It's been a great first season. We've explored a bunch of ideas from a South African perspective. Cryptocurrencies, the ANC and the USSR, modern-day Russia, China, the arts ministry, America, expropriation without compensation, alternative education systems, and some art. And thanks to you, listenership is slowly and steadily creeping up. So thank you for subscribing, and please tell three people you know why The Commute is your favorite South African podcast. I'm relying on you to grow my cult until I too can one day buy a ranch in rural Oregon and set up a brand new city solely dedicated to worshipping me. Even though I'll never actually be there, I'll be at home in South Africa watching Netflix and just occasionally tweet you all inspirational messages and my banking details. But seriously, thanks for listening and if you have any ideas for feedback, suggestions or cool guests you think I should be considering for season two, please let me know. You can email me at thecommuteessay at gmail.com. On to today's interview. If you're like me, you've spent the first few months of Cyril Ramaphosa's presidency wandering around asking everyone, so are the goodies winning or are the baddies winning? Yes, sure, Zuma is out. But David D.D. Mabuza, he of the dead eyes and the chilling grin, is in with a vengeance. The investment community loves Cyril, but then he's taken up expropriation without compensation with enthusiasm, and that's scaring everybody. Theresa May came to visit and maybe promised us trade, but then ESCOM is so bad that we can no longer really use words to describe what a crisis the state-owned electricity provider is in, only set fire to our own money in a wheelbarrow and dance around it, pointing and crying in the ESCOM dance of utter futility. Why does Ace Magashule still have a job? Why is Faith Mutambi still a thing? And if the rumours are true about Batabide Dlamini, won't throwing a bucket of water on her just melt her into a puddle on the ground? Who is actually winning? We thought it would be great. A new dawn, Ramaphoria, Simunye, Dolus Eventualis, whatever. The point is, how is Cyril Ramaphosa's presidency really going, for realsies? To answer these questions, I managed to get Carol Payton to agree to be interviewed. As a politics junkie myself, I'm unashamedly 100% a Carol Payton fangirl, so I've edited all squealing out of the interview. Payton is a senior political writer for the Financial Mail and Business Day, where she was also deputy editor for a long time, and she is one of the best political analysts and writers we've got, in my opinion. Carol Payton, I'm so excited to have you on The Commutes. Thank you so much, Jessica. Very nice to be here. So Ramaphosa's a couple of months into our world, more than a couple of months. He's getting into his presidency now. My impression is that Ramaphosa wants to rule by consensus. So he, he likes to get agreements, perhaps in the style of the ANC of old. He has lots of investigations and commissions and inquiries, etc., But given the hyper-partisan state of the ANC and, in fact, the country, is this leadership? I think a lot of people are starting to feel that it isn't leadership. And um, because we do have such a fractured political environment, we've got very strong embedded vested interests in the political environment. To work by consensus ends up in a messy compromise, or to work by consensus all the time ends up in a messy compromise. So um, you take, for instance, you know, something like retrenchments. Um, this public service needs to cut down the number of people it has. This is important so that the budget can be spent on other things which actually generate growth. And um, the, the, if you're going to 
deal with that issue by consensus when in fact what you need is a president who takes a tough decision and says we have to do this it's in all of our long-term interests um, and and who persuades other social partners that is what needs to be done and that is not happening and that's not happening in a whole variety of, of, of areas and I think that um, it's it's he's running out of time so the more he kind of dithers and has commissions and you know uh, negotiates um, the 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 more embedded those interests become and the less time there is to actually save the economy and also it opens up the door for these fundamentalists i think of julius malema's almost trumpian ability to seize the news cycle um lots of accusations that the eff is in fact leading the anc round by the nose on issues such as expropriation without compensation and my fear and i think a lot of people's fear is that the more he does dither to use your word the more the fundamentalists are going to come to the fore I think so. And, and, you know, I really think you should take the fight to the fundamentalists. I don't think that, you know, the majority of South Africans want to be led by Julius Malema. I don't think they trust Julius Malema. I think that they are suspicious that um, the EFF's policies are not, you know, are not going to bring them, you know, utopia or nirvana. So I think that he should really be taking the fight to the EFF and isolating them and saying, um, your, your policies are ruinous for the economy. Your, your policies are not going to be good for this country. And isolating them, in fact, that in, in fact, what he's doing is doing the opposite. He keeps on building bridges with them, he thinks. And I can see that his, his strategy, strategy is obviously to neutralize them. And he's got um, in his own party a kind of quite a strong faction of people who used to be, you know, aligned to, to the Zuma camp, um, who share many of the same ideas or who have a similar um, outlook and a similar political objective, which is to weaken Ramaphosa. And so I can see, the, you know, his, his, his rationale is, well, I'm going to neutralize the EFF. I'm going to neutralize these fundamentalists within our ranks. And then I'm going to get a clear run and have my 10 years. But what we're starting to realize is that clear run is not guaranteed. And um, building all of these these alliances and making these quite serious compromises um, and 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 this policy kind of ambiguity and and you know this attempt to to sort of adopt radical policies but then to try and explain after well actually it's not that radical is is is, is not working and and I think it's I think it's a it's a dangerous game. Yes, it's been slightly painful to watch Ramaphosa in the Financial Times trying to pass off expropriation without compensation, um, A, as necessary, given that the Constitution, uh, in most people's view, already allows for expropriation without compensation, and also that it's an entirely reasonable and manageable um, policy approach to take. It's been, it's been quite difficult to see that. Can you just talk us through some of the opposition blocks inside the ANC? And I'm thinking specifically of what I think might be one of the biggest threats, which is actually located inside the office of the president in the form of Deputy President David Mabuza. Who are some of those forces and are they looking to regain power? Are they just looking to continue patronage networks? What do they want? Well, they want power. So um, you've actually got in the ANC, so you've got the, the former Zuma kind of block, which is pretty powerful. So you've got, you know, people like Nomvula Mokanyane, 
um, the, the kind of whole KZN uh, provincial crowd. You've got um, people in the in the northwest. So you've got these 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 groupings, sort of who were all united behind the JZ kind of faction, who's still there. They're still there. They're still present. Um, and in many places, in many provinces and so on, they're still in power. So you've got them. Then you've got an interesting phenomenon, which is another faction altogether, which is um, Didi Mabuza, who's nicknamed Didi. I cannot explain. I presume his <laughs> his first name is David. His second name might be something with a D. I don't know. Right, right. But so he's Didi Mabuza. And then alongside him, alongside Didi, you've got Paul Mashatile, um, who was the the Gauteng, um ANC chair for, for, for many, many years. So at at um, Nazrek, what happened at Nazrek is that in order to defeat the Zuma faction, Cyril made an alliance with the Didi Paul Mashatile group. Now that group is is not an ideological group. It's not a group based on any kind of specific ideas. It's a group that wants power, and um, they're there and they're waiting to take over. So if Ramaphosa does falter, and um, there is there isn't there is actually a, an attempt to remove him, which is successful. Um, Didi as the deputy president, and Paul Mashatile as the as a treasurer. You know, two very powerful individuals mm. in the top six who are going to step in there. So, so um, that is a real fear, and that and that is very much what is fueling much of what Cyril Ramaphosa is. Is doing um, with regards to kind of trying to contain and keep the ANC together, but you know, um, in my own view, you know, I, I think that it's exactly those elements—the elements of patronage, people brought who sort of who's actually whose own interest, only interest is really, um, you know, to to reestablish or to strengthen their patronage networks. Um, those are the people who, who actually need to be taken on in the ANC. If the ANC is going to survive and if, if um, Cyril's presidency is going to survive, but it doesn't seem that that is a strategy that they consider viable. So um, you've got these very, fr- basically, it's, it's, you've got a very fractured ANC, an ANC in which um, Cyril Ramaphosa is not in charge, um, neither really are the Zuma people, You've got this other faction with Didi, and um, there was that very frightening article in the New York Times about Didi Mabuza recently. Yes, yes. A lot of his his past was brought up and kind of the patronage and the kind of blatant corruption that went on when he was the premier of Mpumalanga. So um, these are scary characters, and um, they are waiting in the wings. So do you think that given the strength of the South African presidency, and it does as an office hold quite a lot of power, do you think Cyril Ramaphosa is overestimating the risk if he were to act unilaterally or take strong positions? It's difficult to know, but that's obviously his assessment. So his assessment is that if he didn't, for instance, say in the ANC National Executive Committee meeting, um, I think we should change the constitution because that is what people want. Um, would he then have had a fight back from people saying, well, there you see, um, 
he's not committed to 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 radical you know to, to real change for people so it's difficult to know um, he obviously thinks it's the case I think there are many dangers in in going up against that group so in going up against that group or taking them on or taking on that whole lobby um, which is sort of part EFF part within the ANC taking on those people is very dangerous and and could split the ANC but you see as somebody who's who's sort of watching this mess unfold I don't think that that's necessarily a bad outcome um, we're heading we're heading into a sort of a serious decline and um, and something has to something has to give and um, unfortunately we're not going to have an election you know next year in which another party is able to take power so it really is for the next in the short term it's up to the ANC to to come up with some kind of solution or you know it's up to Cyril Ramaphosa to come up with some kind of viable way forward political way forward for the next five years which and not you know that keeping this holding pattern of sort of holding everyone together is, is not working for either the ANC in the country and I also just wanted to add one other thing and that is that so a lot of this kind of argument around sort of expropriation without compensation is based on a lie so so Ramaphosa comes into you know comes panics writes an article in the FT puts advertisements in business day and in these in these in the you know in these things he argues um, that yes you know we, we, we've got to do expropriation without compensation because because land is a real issue and we've got to have change now that the lie there is that you expropriate you allow for expropriate expropriation without compensation and you don't things don't change for people they actually don't change because that's not why things are not changing for people. The reason why things are not changing for people is that the economy can't grow. And the land reformed part program has been a disaster. So it's a lie to sort of to 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 you know build this whole thing on well we have to do this um, because we need to change the lives of ordinary people is a lie. That's not what we have to do to change the lives of ordinary people. We need we need growth and we need an honest government. Yes, and fanning the flames of nationalism and emotive issues is is really a short term game. Um, you can you can fan these things, especially ahead of elections. And twenty nineteen is bearing down on the ANC, but as you say, uh, the hangover is is always is more disappointing each time. Um, so so if we look ahead to twenty nineteen, expropriation without compensation actually seems to be creating more problems than it's solving. Exacerbated um, at the time of recording by Donald Trump weighing in on the issue in his white conspiratorial deeply ignorant way um, so what platforms do you think the ANC is going to run on in 2019 is it just expropriation without compensation and is it going to be good enough yeah, I think that I don't know if they're going to make that a major part of their platform um, I think that the, the point there is just to sort of neutralize the, the EFF I think that, you know, I think they'll go on pretty much what they always go on, which is um, we are the National Liberation Movement. Um, we, we are, we've brought you freedom. So backwards um, looking, sort of a historical yeah, done, romanticism. And to say, which has there been their message, in fact, in every single election since 94, their message has been, 
there's we've done a lot of things and they'll count up the number of houses and the number of households with electricity etc etc and say but there's more work to be done and urging people to be patient you know your turn is coming um, we are doing our best and um, you know that message has worked for them because because ultimately people want to believe the ANC they want to believe that this this is this party that they feel very emotionally attached to um, is doing the right thing and it's got their interests at heart. So they really want to believe in it. Um, and whether, you know, whether or not sort of, you know, the counter narrative, which is to say, but look, look at the corruption, look at the mismanagement, look at the misgovernment, look at the failures, um, which are stagnation which are of the economy. Many, yeah. yeah, which are many. Um, doesn't always resonate. So I think, you know, South African voters generally do vote along our lines of identity. And um, I don't think that their, their approach is going to be any different to that. If the ANC has taken the gamble that expropriation without compensation will perhaps reach um, rural or dislocated sort of populations. I also wonder about the middle class, which I know the ANC has become increasingly anxious about through the Zuma years. And and I'm thinking specifically of the state of the state-owned enterprises, um, which I know you're following and always have followed very closely. Praveen Gordhan said recently that he estimated up to 100 billion rand had been looted out of the state-owned enterprises through the Zuma years. What's it going to take to turn those around? And have we passed a point of no return? Sure, I don't know whether we've passed the point of no return. Look, the big problem is ESCOM. The other ones, their problems, they should be solved. Almost all of the other ones. South should African be Airways. Solved. I mean, you can't. Yeah, we don't need South African Air- Airways. Um, there's a strong argument that that the government puts forward to say, well, Danel has been successful before and can be successful again, but it's not an essential element of the state. It doesn't deliver anything to people that um, that they need. Um, and then, but the big problem then is, is ESCOM and that and that's that is an unknown question. I think that ESCOM cannot trade its way out of its 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 trouble. I mean in the next five years, you know, ESCOM has got to pay back two hundred and fifty billion Rand in principal debt. And they have to make they have to make interest payments on that on their debt of 200 billion rand in the next five. Oh, it's unbelievable! In the next five years. It's unbelievable. So it, it's 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 just staggering um, what what would be required if ESCOM were to actually trade itself out of its problems. It can't, and I think that's you know that's what <clears throat> what is coming through um, from you know credit rating agencies and so on to say, look, you know there isn't another way for this except to for government to put money into ESCOM. There isn't another way. It's unsustainable. And that's what I think is going to have to happen. I think, firstly, government is going to have to put money into ESCOM. There's no way of avoiding it. And secondly, it does have to restructure the energy sector. But, you know, the problem with restructuring, say, the energy sector and, you know, dividing, you know, splitting up, you know, liberalizing the market, really, is that that's a long-term thing. That's not... 10 years, 10-year project, and um, we haven't got 10 years to to sort ESCOM out. So I don't think there's any other way to do it other than for government to put money into ESCOM, and and which means um, that, you know, government's um, net sort of debt goes up, 
and um, we, we, we blow out the, the, the fiscal deficit. So, you know, economically and the public finance side, um, things are very, very difficult at the moment. And, you know, ESCOM's a key part of that. And I suppose the issue is that in the bigger picture as well, it's not just um, pumping money into ESCOM. It's also that the SABC can't pay its bills. It's that every four to seven years, South African Airways uh, runs out of money entirely. It's that the strategic fuel stocks were sold in murky deals where, you know, we don't fully understand. So it's that the whole... Um, panoply of SOEs require these cash injections and we just don't have the fiscus. To exactly. exactly. And you've got, you know, Praveen Gordon trying to negotiate some sort of deal with the banks, which, I mean, they've tried, tried to keep it very secret, but I mean, basically what they're asking the banks for is another $40 billion for for SOEs. That's excluding ESCOM and Transnet. That's just for the little ones. Um, so another 40 billion over the next three years. So that's another 40 billion rand in debt just for those smaller SOEs. There isn't another way other than to sell some of them. Uh, SAA should really be sold. Um, it's possible that SABC could sell a channel or two. Denel really has to be, we really have to look at how to solve that problem without it having a bearing on on the country's debt. So, yes, it's um, the debt. I mean, I worry about the sort of the debt um, picture and the fact that, you know, we've, you know, Treasuries keeps coming up with a plan to say, well, we'll consolidate debt by this date. But in fact, that plan is, is, is not going to work out and we're going to be consolidated. We're gonna, our borrowing is going to rise for the next, the next three to five years without doubt. So, Carol, just zooming in on the ESCOM issue, what are some of the key decision points or milestones that South Africans should look for in, say, the next year to see whether the Ramaphosa administration is, is setting things right with ESCOM or if they're missing, they're missing opportunities to turn it around? Well, the first thing that ESCOM has to do is cut costs. And um, the, 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 its ability to cut costs is very constrained because it has to buy coal. And it can't control the cost of that coal and the old, the mines which it, you know, it has these tied mines which at which it buys um, coal from at a cost plus, on a cost plus basis. So those those have now become very expensive. So tied into this very expensive coal procurement process, um, it's got to it's got this enormous capital build program, this enormous debt that it has to repay. And it's not going to be able to sell more electricity. So, you know, when a business is in trouble, it must cut costs and increase revenues. But but it's very hard to increase revenue because people don't want more electricity. The economy doesn't have a demand for more electricity. And in fact, the projections are that people will want less uh, um, electricity in the future as, you know, energy becomes more efficient and um, people, people, you know, create their own energy. Um, so I think so. the first one is whether they're going to be able to cut costs and that's going to take, and the, and the big issue there is, 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 is salaries and, and wages. And it's not, it's not just workers, in fact it's the management strata which should have just exploded over the last five to ten years. So can they cut costs? Can they do it? That's number one. 
they are going to, at the end of September, they say they're going to release a strategic plan, which is going to be their vision of, you know, ESCOM in the electricity sector. So um, are they going to open, be open to competition? What role do they see competition as playing? Um, you know, in the past, ESCOM's been very, very protective and not wanted independent power producers. Um, so I think those those two, and I think ESCOM is managing to raise money. It doesn't seem to have so much of a problem raising money. I mean, it is raised, it's got these huge credit facilities from from China and from, um, you know, other development finance institutions. Um, we don't know the cost of that, that debt. Um, you could only assume that given their, their, their credit rating, that's it's very expensive debt. Um, so they can't really cut their borrowing. So they've got to cut their they've got to cut their costs, and um, they've got to they've got to cut, be open to a plan that completely restructures the 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 energy sector. And I think that one of the the, you know, the sort of the big thing will be, you know, to what extent ESCOM and government decide that ESCOM needs to be preserved and protected um, because you know it's it's a national asset. Um, when in fact what really needs to be done is to say ESCOM needs to be broken up, it needs to be smaller, it needs to be more, more efficient, there needs to be competition. And I think that's that's not a, as, you know, as much as that begs common sense to, to many people in the energy sector, that's not necessarily a thing that politicians are going to find easy to do. They'd like to sort of, you know, give up this huge, enormous asset that the state has. Um, even though actually it's it's riddled with debt. Mm-mm, to opt for less power rather than more, literally as well as metaphorically. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we've, we've sort of covered some of the internal dynamics and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, external relationships. So the Zuma government largely seem to have abandoned foreign policy altogether, except perhaps for a sycophantic relationship with Beijing and Moscow. Do you think Ramaphosa will have a different approach to foreign policy? It's difficult to say. I, th- I think that, you know, over the Zuma period, well, you know, we had South Africa joining the BRICS, and I think that the BRICS relationship, as much as everyone goes, well, you know, why is South Africa part of BRICS? Because it's hardly, it's hardly a, you know, a big economy. But I think that that's, that is going to determine a lot of our foreign policy. So I think um, that relationship is very important. So I don't think you know, we're ever going to go go back to a point where, you know, in the Mandela days where we were kind of, you know, <clears throat> a, a very important ally of, of the West. I don't think we're going to go back to that. But the world has changed such a lot. Um, so it's difficult to, you know, it's difficult to, to compare. But um, I don't think, I don't see foreign policy as being a major issue or a major um item on Ramaphosa's to-do list, you know, in, in so far as it, you know, South Africa needs influence or so on. I think that, you know, the more important thing is, can, do we have policies which, which attract foreign investment? And can our foreign policy stance, uh, you know, bolster that, kind of back that up? So I don't see, I don't see it as being a big, a big agenda item. You referenced this earlier, but a great disappointment seems to be settling in over South Africa about how constrained Ramaphosa really seems to be. 
Do you think the media is asking the right questions about the Ramaphosa presidency? Sure. <clears throat> I think, you know, our media, as much as our society is in, in crisis on a number of levels, levels, I think our media are also in crisis. So I think, um, you know, where we are at the moment, we've got an extremely weak media, um, which isn't really asking any questions, really. I mean, the, the media, you know, has become, and this is not just, it's partly the political environment, but it's partly the economic environment and the kind of, you know, the crisis that that news media companies are in because of, you know, financial crisis at the end. Um, but, but they're not spending money, they're not investing, they're not, they're not paying, you know, they're not prepared to invest to, to create quality products. So I don't think the media is asking any of the right questions about anything. I think it's, it's media at the moment is just really chasing the next big train smash. They're just from jumping from one thing to another and in kind of desperation as much as they, you know, kind of sensationalizing everything as, as much as they can. So, you know, the media to ask, for instance, um, to ask the question when Ramaphosa appoints uh, Rasheen Singh to his to his office, um, someone who used to be, you know, 10, 15 years ago married to his nephew. And the media to say that this is, you know, this is nepotism. It's just completely the wrong question. It's just such a typical example of looking for sensation where actually there isn't any. So I don't think we, we, we were asking the right questions. I don't think we I don't think we're equipped enough to actually get a grip on, on what's on what's going on. I think that I don't think we the media is not in a very reflective or neither reflective nor actually um, I don't know the word to use, but I think there's there's a lot of uh, dishonesty, lack of integrity, um, very lot, a lot of confusion about what what one's ethical you know stance should be. So I think our media is not really able to play the kind of role you'd 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 want a media to play in in in, in a democracy. To some extent, it feels like the fallout from the Zuma years. I think we, as a society, everyone's almost so um, punch drunk from that era, uh, which was just so economically depressing. The rise of identity politics and the sort of fanning of racial rhetoric and all of that overlaid with a, a complete culture of impunity. Um, it, it does make reflection and picking your corner and what you're going to report on and how a little bit more difficult, I imagine. And yeah, I know exactly. And so we've got a we've got a media that has 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 thrived, has survived and thrived on, you know, internal party exposés. I mean, the Gupta leaks was like a, you know, it was a high adrenaline. So these stories were exciting, and they were high adrenaline, and they were dramatic. And now that that's gone away, um, it's not like the media are digging in and looking into the serious issues. The media want more adrenaline. They want more. They want more sort of sensation, more drugs. So they kind of, it's become very unsubstantial and very kind of superficial. In some sense, the South African media is ahead of what the American media is experiencing right now, which is these very media savvy, news cycle uh, wise politicians. And I'm thinking specifically of, of Julius Malema here, who leverage the media 
to set the national agenda in some ways. And the South African media has matured and I think has become more wary of Julius Malema and perhaps isn't responding quite as Pavlovian-ly as they they had in the past. Um, And you see that evolution happening in America as well, where the media has become wary of Donald Trump's hijacking of the news cycle, where the media just gets used as an amplifier as opposed to covering the issues in in a sort of, as you say, reflective and analytic sort of way. Um, And I do take some hope from that because I think once the media stops just being used as an instrument, um, they defang a lot of that, a lot of that populist use of of those platforms. Yeah, I'm afraid I'm not as optimistic. I I don't think that um, we've become, you know, that that, 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 I don't think that the reason why the media is not covering Julius Malema in the way that it used to is because it's become sort of more sober-minded and, and realistic about about what his agenda is. I don't think that's that at all. Um, I think it's... Um, I think it's simply a case of... Um, Ramaphosa was pretty exciting for the last um, six months. Um, it was a it was a great new thing. There was you know there was this phenomenon of ramaphoria, and um, so so that was the next that was the next best thing. I don't so I don't think it's going to last. I don't you know, I think that once um, I, yeah I don't think it's going to last. I don't I think that, you know, the other issue is that the the EFF played an interesting role during the during the Zuma years. It wasn't just a radical voice. Um, it was also uh, Julius Malema litigated. He was a chief litigator against yes. the unconstitutionalism of government, and um, and so so he was. What he was doing was um, pro democracy and and pro the constitution and and all of those good things. Which is remarkable given his antipathy towards the constitution at all other times. Exactly. So we all loved him when he was doing that. And when he was, you know, when he, he he was one of the few people who who stood up and and was prepared to 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 bring Zuma down. He was prepared to insult him and 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 tell him the truth about who he who he is and 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 um and I think that so so with Zuma gone, you know, the kind of political dynamics in 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 the country shifted, and I think therefore. The EFF also became less interesting because that role of hitting a zoom up, hit you know, was um, is no longer there. So I don't, I don't expect the, I don't think that there's been a sort of a kind of conscious uh, consideration to say, well, you know, Julius actually dangerous person. Let's not give him as much credit. I don't think it's, um, yeah, I don't think it's, it's, it's that way at all. Well, I appreciate the reality check. Just in case my my uh, my very limited optimism <laughs> grew too much there, so thanks, Carol. <laughs> um, are there any websites or books or resources that you would recommend that our listeners go and seek out if they want to understand a little bit more about the Ramaphosa presidency? What do I look at? I mean, you've got me completely. Um, you know, it's 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 not as if um, government itself and and Ramaphosa himself is putting out much information. It isn't. It isn't putting out much information. So, 
So there's very little coming out from them, which one could say, draw on and say, if you want to understand Saul Ramaphosa, go, go and read this um, or, go and, or go and have a look at this speech. Very, very little information is, 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 is being put out. So I don't think that's, you know, that that's helpful. I think from a kind of a, um, analytical point of view, um, well, I would just interrupt and say, listeners, if you want a good analytical point of view, I'd strongly recommend reading Carol Payton, <laughs> which is why she's on this podcast. <laughs> well, that's very nice. But I, I do think that, you know, some of the newspaper columnists are are more insightful than, you know, I can't. I think that, you know, the Helen Susan Foundation does good work. I think the Institute for Race Relations does some really excellent research when it's not being... Um, uh, a slave to kind of ideology um so yeah i'm sorry i have no advice for your listeners listeners you can you can follow carol on twitter and uh, she writes in business day and thank you so much thanks jessica it was really enjoyable that's it for season one I'm going to take a short break now from the podcast, but please don't worry, I'm already planning season two where I want to talk about Brexit, how South Africa handles refugees, what's going on in Zambia, depression and paleontology, just for starters. So I'll be back at some point in December to keep you company over the Christmas vacay, and I hope you can re-listen to some episodes to keep you company in the meantime.